Greetings and welcome to The House Podcast. My name is Michael and I'm so glad that you're here listening with us. The House Podcast shares the message each week from our local gathering in Central Ohio, which is a gathering of those practicing or interested in practicing the way of Jesus together in our city. In addition to the message given each week by the speaker, we also occasionally will share bonus content, such as interviews with speakers, more in-depth discussion around certain topics, and practical exercises that can help you grow as an apprentice of Jesus. The House Podcast is part of the VIA Podcast Network, which is a larger network of podcasts, all designed to help you and your community live out the way of Jesus in your context. For more information about The House or VIA, you can find us at theviacollective.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at thehouse.gathering. If you would like to contribute to The House financially, you can also do that at theviacollective.com. We're so glad you're here with us today, and may you be blessed by this week's message. Father, thank you so much that we can come here, that we can open your word, that we can follow you, Jesus. We ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your presence, that you would teach us how to follow Jesus and empower us to do those things that we know how to do or want to do but just struggle we give you tonight lord and we ask that you would be the center of everything it's in jesus name we pray amen so good to be with you all tonight my name's michael like dan said it's really an honor to be with you so excited we are starting a brand new series the first in practicing the way Um, but before we do that i do want to just review a little bit Also, just before we do that, who was here last week when Dan was speaking, had an awesome fall launch, yeah? It's good to see some of you back here again. Um, Thank you so much, Dan, for that word. Um, I'll remember your story about laziness for a long time. Yeah. Um, So we're going to dive in, and I'm going to start with just a little bit of review. If this is your first time here at the house, it's kind of similar to church, maybe similar to what you've experienced in a church before. Somebody gets up and talks, then there's music. Um, But there is a little bit of a a difference um, than what you might normally experience. A lot of times in church, it's kind of all about you get information about the Bible or about Jesus, and then you kind of leave, and you hopefully, some of us, try to apply whatever it is we learned. Um, And I want to just shift us a little bit and talk a little bit about practicing the way of Jesus. Um, Because before we dive into our first practice, which isn't really a secret, you probably saw it on the first slide, but before we dive into our first practice, I do want to talk a little bit, what do we even mean by practice? What does it even look like to orient our lives around habits or routines, particularly the habits or routines of Jesus. And a lot of us, if we're honest, our faith is a list of things we think. Um, Maybe we might say we have beliefs. Hopefully those beliefs are right beliefs, and we might have standards that we use to determine if they're right. Um, Historically, we had things called the creeds. Anybody ever heard like the Apostles' Creed before? Yeah, 
they're just kind of lists of things that the church universally has believed. And because we grew up in the West as kind of the product of the Enlightenment and modernism, we kind of grew up in a world that told us that if we just think the right things, then that's what we are. That we can actually categorize people by what they think. Another way to think about it might actually be to say this. We've kind of separated how we actually live from what we say we believe. And so when we come to practicing in the way of Jesus, there's going to be this tension. We're going to think of it probably in terms of obedience and habits and things Jesus did. And we might think that this stuff is like optional. I believe the right things about Jesus, so I know where I go when I die, but I don't actually have to live his way of life. And there's only, well, there's several, but there's one main problem with this, and that's that Jesus never made that offer. Jesus never made that offer. He never said to anybody, come follow me, and if you think the right things, when you die... I will be there, and I will let you in to a better place than if you think the wrong things. He didn't make that invitation to us. Instead, he offered himself as an example, a way of living. You might say he was the master at living, and he invited us to live that way of life. Um, Dallas Willard has a kind of famous quote that kind of really encaptures this idea. He says, my central claim is this, that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. That we actually follow Jesus by doing the things that Jesus did, and that this is the heart of discipleship. That word discipleship, matates, is really all about being an apprentice, we kind of lose it, the, the language in church. A lot of times we think of discipleship as maybe spiritual things we do or things we're learning. But discipleship was actually much more in the first century Judaism about learning to be like somebody. I want you to just picture for a second somebody you really like. What would it be like if you went to that person and said, could I live with you? and you examine that person's life, and you said, I'm going to start dressing like you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your morning routine. I'm going to take the way you eat. I'm going to take your relational way, how you do relationships. That's probably closer to discipleship than going to church. And so to the Jews who believed in Jesus, Jesus once said this, and we're really familiar with the second part, but I don't want you to miss the first part. If you hold to my teaching, Jesus is a rabbi. His teaching is his yoke. It's his way of living. If you hold to my teaching, then you're really a disciple. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're real familiar with that, the truth will set you free part. But we often forget the first in front of it, that if you hold to my teaching, if you live my way of life, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we are creatures of habit. 
When we think about ways of life, I came across this one study that just blows my mind. It says by age 35, 95% of who you are is set of memorized behavior skills, emotional reactions, beliefs, perceptions, and attitude that function like a subconscious automatic computer program. 95%. Another study said more than 40% of the decisions, that's like the choices you make, are actually not decisions, but just habits. That's basically saying like 40% of what you think of as free will isn't really free will. We are habitual creatures. And so when we come to this, how did Jesus live? That's why we're going to start with practices. We're not going to start off with one-off examples of things he did once or twice. We're going to start with what what was the actual grind of his daily life like? And we actually have four accounts of Jesus's life, and there's a surprising amount in there. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell us how he lived. And so Sunday nights, the house, no matter where you go to church, no matter what you believe, it's all around this idea of are you interested or are you committed to living like Jesus lived? Are you willing to explore how this man lived? Because I believe that he was the master of living. I believe that nobody else lived like him. And I think a lot of times what we think of as just the amazing things about him are actually just the fruit of his disciplined life. And so how did he live? How did he Live, And that kind of leads us to our first practice, the first thing we're going to dive into. I had to put two book recommendations up here because I love to read. Um, If you're interested in more about this practice of Jesus, I highly recommend Solitude and Silence, the invitation to Solitude and Silence. And then if you're just interested in general about this idea of like, what are the practices of Jesus, some language around them is spiritual disciplines. Um, I would encourage you to read Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. If you're interested in of those books, I'd be happy to help you get them. But if you're at all intrigued by this sermon series that we're doing on silence and solitude, then I would love to go deeper with any of you. Um, But we're going to dive right in. And before we kind of get to the practice of Jesus, I do want to kind of set it up a little bit. We are living right now at an inflection point in human history. Um, I I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to be alarmist or I don't want to be like, man, every generation thinks they're the generation or whatever. But we really are living at an inflection point. In 1440, does anybody know what happened in 1440? There's something famous. Probably the last inflection point in human history. What happened in 1440? <laughs> no, but that was 50 years later. The printing press. The printing press was around. 1440, and it led to the Protestant Reformation, which completely changed Europe. Has anybody ever read anything? Yeah, you can thank Gutenberg. Um, The printing press radically changed the world. And what we mean by an inflection point, it's this point where there's, there's no going back. And what's crazy is you are living right around an inflection point. Um, 2007 is actually the official start of what sociologists call the digital age. 
In 2007, the first iPhone came out. First time there was an app store. Facebook went from this thing on a university to anybody with an email address can have it. Twitter went from a microblog to Twitter, right? The world radically changed, and the digital age started. And I think some of us, we don't, we don't realize just how dramatic that is. Anybody in here over 25? Over 25? Yeah, if you're over 25, you probably remember things like boredom. It used to be that when you waited in a line, you had nothing to do. You had nothing to do. It used to be Wi-Fi wasn't everywhere. It used to be that the average person had no access to any of the stuff that you have access to carried around in your pocket. It was a radical transformation of society. The world radically changed in the last 15 years. In fact, some of us who grew up were under 25, and this is the only world we've ever known. We have no idea what it was like. We don't know what buffering is or the sound your computer makes when it's trying to connect to the internet. We don't know any of those things. We don't know what it's like to not be able to Google the answer to your question. I, I have a dog who's about a year old, and I swear every day I Google, can my dog eat something? I have no idea how I would have kept my dog alive 10 years ago. I really don't. I would probably just not ever be able to feed it anything. I'd be like, well, don't know. The world has radically changed, and we live in what economists are calling the attention economy. Everything is about getting your attention. And that has drastically changed how we think, how we relate to each other, how present we are, our low levels of anxiety that never go away. In 1980, a study was done that found television and the effect it had on humanity was that our attention span was down to 12 seconds. A more recent study in 2015, we're down to 8 seconds, which is about a goldfish. That's how long our attention span is. We are constantly bombarded with digital noise, even noise that our actual ears can't always hear. And, you know, 12 to 8, we don't have a lot of wiggle room. We don't have a lot of wiggle room when it comes to our attention span. We are bombarded. We are living in a time where it is hard to be human. Um, Tristan Harris, who used to work for Google, when he quit, said this, imagine walking into a control room with a bunch of people hunched over a desk with little dials, and that control room will shape the thoughts and feelings of a billion people. This might sound like science fiction, but this actually exists right now today. That's what he said on the way out of Google. We live in an attention economy where people, 25, 30-year-olds are in Silicon Valley coming up with ways to grab your attention, coming up with ways to distract you, coming up with ways to grab you and pull you away. We are bombarded by it, and we're losing something. We're losing the core, the essential human ability to be present to ourselves, to each other, and to God. We're losing that. In this age, we're losing it. Andrew Sullivan in The New Yorker wrote an essay called I Used to Be a Human Being. I just want to read you the last lines of his essay. 
There are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness, and its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure, the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. We might even forget that there is more. And some of us, if we're just being real honest, we've just kind of adjusted. We're used to the noise. And the truth is, he's right. Most of the time, we're not aware that we have souls. And we're not just talking about mental health here, although that's certainly one of the areas that's affected by this. We're talking about our spiritual life, our ability to relate. And so it reminds me of something Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet lost his soul? What would it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? Are we losing something? Are we losing something? We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. That's Ronald Rollheiser. He wrote that in the 1980s. It's probably more true today. We're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. He went on to write that it's not so much that our generations are not spiritual, it's that they're distracted. They're unable to pay attention to what's going on beneath the surface. And all of that kind of leads us to this question. How did Jesus stay present? Is there something from his life that can aid us that we are desperately missing? And I think the answer is yes. You probably could have guessed that. You might have even guessed it's silence and solitude if you've been following along or saw the first slide. And I think silence and solitude, which it's been kind of is now called silence and solitude. It's been called a lot of things throughout human history, but I think this practice of Jesus is worth giving a second look to because I'm going to argue that it was vital to Jesus' life, essential to him. And so we're going to just look a little bit at Jesus' life for the next couple minutes, and I want you to just kind of try to pay attention. If you're here, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, trying to live like he lived, then I want you to pay attention to how he lived. Because it's real easy to just say the words. It's hard to orient your life around the things that Jesus actually did. And so in Matthew 3, we kind of pick up the Jesus story. Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as, John, or as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry, and the tempter comes to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the story kind of goes on. But I want to point out, the first thing Jesus does after his baptism is he goes straight into the wilderness. In fact, the Greek word, it literally means driven by. The Spirit drove him 
forcefully guided him into the wilderness. And if you've been reading the Bible from the beginning, you probably kind of think, yeah, it makes sense. Jesus is going to go have his fight with the devil. That kind of makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is why the wilderness? I used to think when I read this story that Satan attacked Jesus in the wilderness because he was weak, because he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. But I think when you start to look at the life of Jesus, what you find is the wilderness is not a place of weakness. It's a place of strength for Jesus. The word wilderness is a ramos. A ramos can mean a wilderness, desolate place, deserted place, solitary place, quiet place. I really like a lonely place. The Spirit led Jesus to a lonely place, a lonely place where he could be strengthened. And we're going to see in the life of Jesus that over and over and over again, Jesus chooses to get away from his life and to go to the lonely place. It was almost non-negotiable. Why was Jesus led into the wilderness? He was led there because that's where he was strengthened. That's where he was strengthened. It was after fasting and being in the solitary place that we see Jesus always emerges full of the Spirit, full of strength. In fact, in the Gospels, one of the most common patterns is Jesus leaving the Aramos and going and seeing revival, seeing sin defeated, seeing healings. It was his retreat. It was his space with him and with God. It's not the place of weakness. It's the place of strength. We're going to look at Mark. In the beginning, Mark 1 is like a whole chapter about Jesus' first day in ministry. So get this. He's 40 days in the wilderness, 40 whole days by himself. He comes back for one day of ministry, and he goes right back to the wilderness. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place. That's a ramos where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out their demons. So 40 days, he comes back, has a whirlwind of a ministry day, and then he escapes again to the Aramos. In Luke, or Mark chapter 6, we see the same thing. The apostles, this is a really cool story. So the apostles had just been sent out to do ministry. They gather around Jesus, report all the cool things they had done, and then because so many people were coming, they didn't even have a chance to eat. Does anybody relate to that? Have you ever been so busy you didn't even have time to eat? And so then he said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, to a Ramos and get some rest. And then, as they start to go to the solitary place, people recognize them. They ran on foot from all the towns. They got there, and when Jesus saw them, he landed. There was a large crowd. He had compassion. So Jesus really, really wanted them to go get some rest, to go to the Aramos. And then the crowds came, and they couldn't get their rest. And it's really interesting. They feed the 5,000 right after this. But then right after that story, Jesus says he made his disciples get in the boat, go ahead of him, while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. He went to the Aramis. 
Jesus literally dismisses them so he can go to the Aramos. I love this story because it kind of captures reality, right? They were all on fire. They had just seen God do some cool things. Jesus is like, let's get away and be with God. Let's go to the Aramos. Not let's go to Netflix. Not let's go binge eat. But let's go to the Aramos. And then they try to, and immediately life interrupts them. And then after the interruption, Jesus is like, go. I love that. He sends them away. I'm going to the mountainside. I'm going to Aramos. It was that important to Jesus. He actually, in the Gospel of Luke, nine times he dismisses people so he can go to Aramos, to the wilderness. In Luke 5, it says, News about him spread all the more, so the crowds and people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. All four gospel writers highlight this. It's this retreat, this forced retreat that was disciplined into Jesus' life. It was one of his practices. In fact, one scholar says, the busier Jesus got, the more he retreated to the Aramos. And so what can we learn from the life of Jesus? One, he thought that it was necessary. And if Jesus thought the wilderness was necessary for his relationship with God, then how much more for us? How much more do we need to escape life? How much more do we need to escape life's pressures and the busyness and the noise? And so the invitation of this practice is to get away to retreat. And I can't stress this enough. This was not an annual retreat. Jesus had three years of ministry. He got away for three great camps. This was not an annual retreat. This was a regular pattern in his life. 40 days in the wilderness, one day of ministry, a whole nother night in the wilderness. It was more important to him than sleep. A revival happens in Galilee. I'm leaving, guys. They're like, whoa, wait, there's people here, there's crowds. You can't turn down ministry, Jesus. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to the mountain to pray. I'm going to be with my Father. This is essential to who I am. There is no me. There is no this ministry without this. This is somehow crucial to being human. It's somehow crucial to knowing God. At some point, the noise has to stop. So one of the practices we see from the life of Jesus is this habit of retreating, of going to the lonely place to pray. And so we're calling it silence and solitude. And what we mean by that is intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and with God. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and with God. When we think of silence, there's kind of two kinds of silence. There's external silence, where we take out the earbuds, we turn off whatever's playing in the background, we actually get quiet. There's numerous scientific studies that have been done that just talk about the simple fact of just being quiet actually helps your mental health, helps your brain. But we were doing this practice for something more than 
just mental health. The invitation is all that's bombarding you just kind of stops. I remember just yesterday, uh, my wife went to a concert with her sister, and I just had some time by myself. And I thought, I'm speaking on silence and solitude, what if I did it a little? And so I practiced some silence, just sat on my balcony, and Granville's a little bit loud, so it's not like a quiet room, but it was pretty quiet in the evening. And just stopping and sitting in silence for one, two, three, four, five minutes, it was like tension just eased. And I realized, man, it's been too long since I just stopped. Since I stopped pretending that what I do is who I am. And in the silence, as we silence kind of externally, we realize there's a much harder kind of silence. And that's internal silence. And if we're honest, a lot of us turn the noise up externally because we're afraid of the noise internally. But if we can have the courage to turn the noise off, then the next step is there's this internal quiet that can come. We can't dismiss our emotions and our thoughts. We have to feel them. We have to release them. But there's an internal silence that is necessary to walk with God. And Jesus, he went to the mountain. He went to the lonely place, the desolate place, time and time again. I think in our culture, we put way too much value on talking. And I love talking. I love good conversations with people. I love podcasts. I love information and ideas. I read a lot of books. But the truth is, for my soul to just be present with God, for the talking to kind of just stop, for my prayer time to be more than just me throwing words at heaven, there's something precious that happens. We begin to become present to ourselves and to God. And then solitude Silence is kind of necessary for solitude, but a couple quotes on solitude. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So there's a difference between I just want to be alone because I'm trying to get away from people and actual solitude where I'm content. Please, Pascal once said, all the world's problems would be solved if people could sit alone on their bed for an hour. And I think he's probably right. And so there's some element of living with myself. But then Wayne Cordero says this, solitude is chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. And so sometimes when we're just running away from people, running away from situations, that, that's isolation. But when we choose to be alone with God in the quiet, that actually brings up an inner fortitude, a refining of your soul. As we go through this sermon series, next week Zach is going to talk a little bit about how do we make space for this. But then we're going to kind of wind our way down. We're going to talk one week about how do we physically rest? What does it mean, Sabbath? What does it mean to get away? What does it mean with our body? Um, that It's going to be fun. There's a story in the Old Testament called Elijah and the broom bush which is this crazy story where Elijah goes 
way out into the wilderness because he's just exhausted. And the first thing that the angel of the Lord does is he takes care of his body, makes him a meal. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how do we just physically unwind. And then we're going to move. Pastor Tom's going to come. We're going to talk about emotionally what happens. Because for a lot of us, when we get to silence and solitude, the truth of the matter is, is we're uncomfortable with what comes to the surface, what we've been suppressing. And so Pastor Tom's going to come and talk a little bit about the emotional side of silence and solitude. Because the truth is, a lot of us avoid this practice of Jesus. We would say on Sunday morning, I want to be like Jesus, but our life doesn't reflect his practice of silence and solitude because we are afraid of what will come up if the noise goes down. So Pastor Tom's going to talk about what do we do with those emotions. And then finally, Dan is going to speak on, okay, we've talked about the physical component, the emotional or soul component. What about when we actually get in the quiet? How do we hear God's voice? And a lot of us, if we're honest, we want to hear God's voice in a moment of crisis, in a moment of choice, but we're way too loud inside to ever hear his still small whisper. We're way too hurried. Jesus unhurried his life. Jesus got away. That's what you think about. When was the last time you could say that? I got away. I have an Aramos place. I have a lonely place. I got away. My, my life, if somebody were to write a biography about it, would say he practiced ministry and then he retreated. He practiced ministry, he retreated. He got away. He was fueled by something beyond crowds or attention. That this world we live in that constantly bombards us with information which constantly distracts us to oblivion that's all set up to prevent us from having a spiritual life at all, that we get away, we get out from the pressure. We can be alone with God and we know who we are. We're not trying to avoid what's going on. We're not trying to avoid reality. Jesus was who he was in public because of who he was in private. He was who he was in ministry because of who he was when he was alone. And a lot of us, we desire to be like him in ministry, but we don't want the night on the mountain. We don't want the retreat. We don't want to deal with the baggage that we know would come to the surface if we really let God talk to us and set the agenda, if we really got silent Henry Nouwen says it like this, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. And I kind of want to end with that. At the beginning, we talked about this difference between believing the right things and actually living the way of Jesus. And is it possible that this could be true of you? We do not take the spiritual life seriously. We check off the box 
I think he died. I think he rose from the dead. And we take our spiritual life kind of lackadaisically. We don't take it seriously. There's no way to follow Jesus without practicing silence and solitude. That's like saying, I'm practicing the way of Michael Jordan without shooting baskets. There's no way. It was his way of life. He lived in that space, in those moments with his father. He was empowered and could see and know what the Spirit was doing in public because of his time in private. And the invitation to us, the invitation of Jesus is follow me. Follow me. I often wondered what this looked like. The disciples, there's, this, there's really one main rule if you were a disciple in the first century. It was to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was basically, don't lose him. You're literally following this guy around. There's no cell phones. If you lose him, you're in trouble. <laughs> don't lose him. And Jesus is constantly losing them. Constantly losing them. And they probably would have learned in the first month or two, this rabbi I follow, he disappears at night. He disappears early in the morning. I think it's connected to this weird relationship with God he has. Like when he prays, it seems like things just happen. When he teaches, it's like one with authority. Man, this, this is crazy. And I'm, I'm a disciple. I'm supposed to believe I can do what he's doing. This must be essential. At one point, they're so bold to be like, teach us how to pray, Lord. How do you do this stuff? But one thing I'm sure they knew was that it was non-negotiable. And I feel like some of us in here, we've checked off the box that we just believe the right things. And we don't have much interest. We're not that serious about living the way of Jesus. And so as we start this series, you're going to hear amazing things from Zach and Dan and Tom about how to do this practice. But at the end of the day, how, while it's important, is not as important as deciding you're going to do it. Better to try and fail than not try. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, ends his sermon in a really haunting way. He gives this sermon, the longest sermon he gives that we have recorded, and he ends with this story. He says there's two kinds of people that hear me preach. One of them builds his house on the sand, and a storm comes, and it gets destroyed. He loses everything. And the other kind of person builds their house on on rock, on a solid foundation, and the storm comes, doesn't get destroyed. And then he leaves with this haunting words, this haunting idea. The one who builds on the rock is the one who does my teaching. What determines whether it all gets destroyed, he seems to suggest is whether or not you live out his teaching. Or like he said in John 8, if you live out my teaching, then you'll know the truth. Not abstract. Not mental assent. You'll know. You'll know. And some of us have been surrounded our whole lives by truth. 
and we don't know the truth. We haven't ever been alone with God. We haven't ever actually encountered him. And we certainly can't say we're practicing his way of life. So blessed is the one who does it, not the one who takes the best notes on this sermon series, not the one who just says, yeah, that Jesus guy, he really did get away. Blessed is the one who actually retreats. Blessed is the one who can actually be found on the mountainside. Blessed is the one who's awake in the middle of the night. Blessed is the one who it can be said of them, they often get up in the morning and are alone with him. That's who's blessed. Not because there's just some abstract award system for certain behaviors, but because we need the lonely place. You are blessed when you go there, not because there's a spiritual scorecard. You're blessed when you go there because when you go there, the noise can die away and you can meet the God who made you. You're blessed when you go there because it's in the wilderness that you find the strength to defeat the devil. It's in the wilderness that you find the strength to do the good works God's prepared for you to do, your purpose. You're not blessed just because God has three hoops he wants you to jump through. He's begging, Jesus is inviting, come follow my way of life because you need this. And if Jesus needed it in the first century, if he needed it to be present with God, how much more in our world? How much more do we need it today as we check our phone 300 times a day? How much more as our attention span goes from 12 seconds to 8 seconds to 6 seconds? How much more in the noise we're surrounded with, do we need that retreat? That's the invitation of solitude and silence. That's the invitation of this practice of Jesus. And I can promise you this, if you're serious about following Jesus and you work this into your life, it will change you. It will change you. Not because we believe that your works change you, but because This practice opens you. It allows you to receive from God. And some of us, we're like little kids on Christmas where we have presents in our hands and we're asking our parents for more presents and they're trying to get us to let go of the wrapping paper we're still holding. And silence and solitude is a way to let go, to open your hands to God. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much that we have these accounts of the life of Jesus. I just know so many people who don't have access, who who have never heard. And here we are, and we, we know, we can read how you lived. Lord, I pray that you would convict us and strengthen our resolve to put into practice your way of life. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, but that tangibly doesn't really mean anything, I pray that this practice from your life, this habit, would somehow become our habit. 
that it would somehow become our automatic response to get away, to be with you. I know, Lord, there's people in this room that you have been calling for a long time. People you've been inviting to this practice, inviting to the Aremos. You've been waiting for them to go to the place where it's quiet enough for them to be with you. And we just, we're sorry, Lord, for letting too many things get in the way. We're sorry for being proud of our busyness and the self-importance we let that give us. We're sorry, Lord, for that. We want to say yes to you. I pray, Lord, for those who are here that want to say yes to you. You would just give them tangible ideas, small steps where they can begin to find a Ramos, whether it's a physical place, an image you put in their mind where they can escape to, whether it's as simple as setting the alarm on their phone and getting up a little earlier. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.